Today we're going to be beginning a little series on the book of Ruth. It's one of the smaller books of the Bible, and smaller books of the Bible don't often tend to get the attention that they should really get. Maybe we need to listen to the Apostle Paul when he says, all Scripture, every Scripture, is given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God might be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. I like Ruth because it's my favorite kind of biblical literature. I love biblical narrative. I love the stories, real people, real problems, real predicaments, real tensions. They live lives very much like our lives. And we can learn a great deal by looking at them and listening to them. As we come to the book of Ruth today, we find it's what we call a period piece. You read the first verse of the first chapter and it says, in the time when the judges ruled. Now this, of course, is not the moral high ground of Israel's history. It's often referred to as the Dark Ages. It is a very, very difficult time. In fact, in the book of Judges, we're told no less than six times that Israel sinned in the eyes of the Lord. And we're told more than that. We're told in chapters 17 through 22 of the book of Judges that at that time, Israel had no king and everybody did that which was right in his own eyes. It is a period of evil. It is a period of enemies. It is a period of difficulty. And during this time, God raises up judges. But as we look at the judges one by one, we find that these judges are somewhat morally challenged. We think of Samson and we know of his problem with women. We think of Jephthah and, and the potential sacrifice of his daughter. We think of Baruch and his unwillingness to go into battle unless Deborah goes with him. And we even think of Gideon who in many of our minds is a great hero but at the end of his life makes an idol or some kind of a vestment and the people of Israel worship that and turn away from God. And the writer just sneaks in another little point that he has 70 sons, which might lead you to the idea that he had maybe one or two more wives than he actually needed. thing that's interesting in Judges is this. While the men are morally frail, the women seem to be morally strong. We think of Deborah. We think of Caleb's daughter and the wife of Othniel, and how she's willing to ask for the springs to look after her husband and her family. We think of Samson's mother. We think of Jephthah's daughter. Come to think of it, there's a very ironic point in the book of Judges, and it's this. The strongest man in the world is like putty, like a kitten in the hands of a woman. That is the story of Samson. But think of this today. Given all of these incredible women who are listed in the book of Judges, we don't hear anything about Ruth in the book of Judges. She has her own 
little book, four chapters dedicated to her, and we're going to look at this little book together. As we come to the book of Ruth, uh, we know immediately it's a love story. It's a love story of the, the simplest kind. That is an old-fashioned kind of love story. The boy sees girl, boy meets girl, boy dates girl, boy kisses girl, boy proposes to girl, boy marries girl. It was simple at one point in time. Didn't have all of the tension and intrigue that relationships seem to have in our society today. The writer of Ruth wants you to understand that, that really it was kind of a, a foregone conclusion because when you take Ruth whose name means friendly, and you put her together with a man by the name of, of Boaz, whose name means quick or fast. Well, put a fast man with a friendly woman, it doesn't take you very long to figure out that something is going to happen in the text today. But it's a love story on a much larger scale than that. It's a story about God's love for his people and what God does for his people. So it's a love story. But secondly, it is a familiar story. It's a story that is read every year in Israel. It's read at the Feast of Pentecost. Now, the Feast of Pentecost is kind of a, a late spring feast, and in that late spring feast, what happens is a celebration of the harvest. And if you know anything about the book of Ruth, you know that she's going to end up in the harvest field. She's going to benefit from the harvest, so we have to keep that in mind. But this is a second thing we need to keep in mind as well. The book of Ruth revolves around God's Torah, God's instruction, God's commands. And it is on Mount Sinai, Moses goes up to the mount and God comes down to the mount and he gives the children of Israel, if you will, the law, the instruction as to how they can live good, godly, and blessed lives. There's a third thing we wanted to note about the story of Ruth. The story of Ruth is what I'm going to call a crafted story, and I have to be careful here because my temptation is to look at all of the literary mechanisms that take place in the text, and there are many, but we need to know what the text says, not just how it's put together. On the other hand, we can't ignore the fact that this writer did put the text together in a certain way. He begins the text with a 71-word introduction in the Hebrew Scriptures. And he ends the text with a 71-word in the Hebrew postlude or postlog. And then right in the middle of the text, right in the middle of the text, we come to the turning point. We are introduced to Boaz, who is the kinsman redeemer. But it's more than a crafted text. It's a theological story. It's a story about a promise-keeping God. It is a story about redemption. Twenty-two times in the text of Ruth, we see this word goel in the Hebrew, redemption, redemption, 
redemption. And it is a story that actually looks way into the future, a prophetic story that moves us in the direction of Jesus Christ, who comes into the world as a kinsman. He becomes a human being so that he might relate to human beings, so that he might die for human beings, so that he might redeem human beings. So let's turn to the story. Let me read for you the, the first five verses of the text. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab, and they lived there. Four things that come out in this text that you need to pay some attention to. First of all, it is the time of the judges. We've already spoken about that. Secondly, there is famine in the land. Thirdly, there is a family, and this family is from Bethlehem of Judah. And fourthly, we learn that this family is going to leave Israel and it is going to go to Moab. Those four contextual facts are important for what we are going to see. Now remember that the author of this text likes to use names and likes to use them for a purpose. And so we're told that the name of the husband is Elimelech. That name means God is my king. Interesting, in a time during Judges when people are saying, at that time there was no king, at that time there was no king, we need a king, we need a king, Elimelech is saying by his life and by his name, we have a king. And the king's name is God. Elimelech is married to a woman by the name of Naomi, and her name means pleasant. That makes for good marriage. It's always nice to be married to a pleasant woman. Proverbs says something different about being married to a non-pleasant woman, but she's a pleasant woman. But by the end of this first chapter, she is going to be a miserable old lady and wants to be called Mara, bitter. They have two sons. The sons' names are very, very interesting. The first one is named Malon, and his name means sick. What kind of mother names her kid Sicko? Okay. And the second son name is Kilion, and they name him Pining or Sad. So we have this family. We have this God is King father with a pleasant mother, and with two sons, sicko and sad. And we're told that they're going to make their way to Moab. But here's another name that comes up in the text. The name, we're told specifically where they live. They live in Bethlehem. Now you and I hear the word Bethlehem, the name Bethlehem, and we think about the birthplace of Christ. 
or we think of the hometown of David or something like that. But at this time, it's before David and before Christ. It's a town with a name. And the name of Bethlehem means simply this, house of food. And this is what the writer wants you to see. There's not food in Bethlehem. There is famine in Bethlehem. There is not food in the house of food. There is famine in the house of food. And you need to ask yourself, how did that happen? What caused that? Now, you remember, six times we've heard in the book of Judges, again, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. But there's something we need to understand even further back than that. We need to go back to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 26, and in verse 16, we hear these words. God says, I will be your God if you will be my people. And here's the thing. If you're going to be my people, you need to keep all my statutes, all my commands, all my laws, all my decrees. That's all you have to do. And if you do that, I, I will make you prosper. I will make you live above anyone around you. In fact, as you begin reading chapter 27 and 28 and 29 of the book of Deuteronomy, you get this incredible picture of what happens to those who follow God. They live in blessing. They live on top, not the bottom. They live in prosperity. Their, their fields produce a lot. Their cattle uh, have great offspring. Their sheep the same. Their oxen the same. One blessing after another. They have no enemies. They have no pests. But if they don't keep the statutes, the commands, the laws, the decrees, things reverse. They become the bottom, not the top. They face drought. They face disease. They face enemies. Ultimately, they face exile. And in the text before us today, they face famine. There is no food in the house of food. Today, as we look at the life of Naomi, we're going to take a look at how a person can move from pleasantness to bitterness, how a person can move from joy to sorrow, how a person can move from victory to defeat, how a person can move, if you will, from blessing to cursing. Maybe you already know that story. Maybe in your life you've already walked down that path. But just in case you don't know what the path is, the author of Ruth has laid it out plain for us today. And we're going to look at that path very simply. We're told that this family from Bethlehem, Judah, is going to move to Moab. You say, wait a second, move to Moab? They're going to move from Israel. They're going to move from Judah. They are going to move from the land of promise, to, from the land that is supposed to flow with milk and honey. They're going to move from there to Moab. They're going to move to enemy territory. They're going to move to a morally bankrupt country. 
What on earth could make you do that? And yet, that's exactly what they're going to do. Of, of course, they say, well, we have to go there. I mean, there's no food in our land. They need to hear Chronicles 714, 2 Chronicles 714. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then will I hear from heaven. But we don't see any of that happening in this text today. They're just moving. They're only going to go for a little while. You can hear the rationalization, right? And the rationalization gets deeper because we're told that they're there for about 10 years and the boys have grown and the boys uh, have noticed that there's women out there and they're interested in wives. And now, once again, Elimelech and Naomi have a choice they have to make. What are they going to do to get wives for their children? Are they going to be like Abraham and send back to the old country? Or even like, um, if you will, Rebecca, who's going to send Jacob back to the old country to find a good and godly wife? No, they're not going to do that. They're going to find Moabite women for them, you see. It's just another step a little further away. And i got to tell you something. Moabite women are not known for high levels of morality in the Old Testament. They didn't start that way. They don't continue that way. Let me give you an example. Back in the book of Numbers, chapters 22 through 24, we have the story of Balak and Balaam. Balaam is a prophet, and he is paid by Balak to curse the Israelites. He tries his hardest to curse Israel four attempts, and he is unsuccessful every time. He cannot do it. Balak thinks about a solution. If you can't curse them, Maybe you can corrupt them. And one of the big stories in the end of the book of Numbers is this. The Moabite women are seducing the Israelite men. They are corrupting the nation. This man, Elimelech, and this woman, Naomi, are marrying their sons to Moabite women, and Moabites, by the way, if they come to Israel, are limited from being in temple worship for 10 generations. You get the idea? God is not enthralled with these people. And now we're told something else. It reminds me of the book of Genesis. Elimelech died. Malan died. Chilion died. And he died, and he died, and he died. Kind of sounds like Genesis chapter 5. And he died. You will surely die. And now, Naomi is left alone, and she's left with her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. And now she explains to them that probably the best thing they can do in life is to go home. See? 
She's been wandering away with her family from God's instruction. That's how she's gotten where she is. They have wandered away. It, it was so easy just to take a little step to Moab and, and be there a little bit longer than you thought and then marry your sons to Moabite women. Deeper and deeper and deeper she moves into to sin and moves away from God's instruction. And now there she is in Moab with two daughters-in-law, and what is she going to do? She's going to send them home to their families. She explains to them that, you know, she's going to go back to her hometown, Bethlehem, and, and probably better if they go back to their hometown and find a husband and whatever. But here's the amazing thing. Neither Ruth nor Orpah will leave Naomi. And then another thing comes to her mind, uh-oh, the Leveret Law of Marriage. They're entitled to a redeemer. They're entitled to a son for me. I, I can't have a son. I'm too old. I can't even get married and have a son. They're not going to wait for that son. But she is aware of the fact that one of the things she could do is to take them back to Israel and there they would find a husband, a husband who would raise up children to Malan, a husband who would raise up children to Chilean. That's what the Leveret Law of Marriage did. It protected the family, it protected the inheritance, it protected the people, and she's violated that as well. She has walked away from the instruction of God. And now, and it's really interesting to hear what she says in the text. You almost can't believe it when you read it. She says this, Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait for them till they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand is against me. It's more bitter for me than you? Really? Do you think that's true? I mean, think of it. She's so focused on herself, she can't see anybody else's problem. She's had a husband, a good husband. She had two sons. She's got two daughters-in-law who love her and are willing to go back to her country with her. She can't see it. All she can do is see that her life is worse than any other person's life. But think of their situation. They have no husband. They have no children. They really have no future. And more than that, they have a mother-in-law who's trying to get rid of them. Orpah finally figures that out and decides to go home. But now we come to another thing in the text. You see, the first step down the road to messing up your life in bitterness is walking away from God's instruction. The second step is to think that your situation is worse than anybody else's. And now we come to an interesting thing in the story. Ruth says, Orpah may be going home, I'm not. Here's the deal. Do not ask me to go back. Do not ask me to stop coming with you. Where you go, 
I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. You talk about commitment. You talk about love. You talk about blessing. It doesn't get any more intense than this. I mean, this is incredible, this blessing that she has from God. And yet, if you look at the text, it's as if Naomi doesn't even hear that. That's the amazing thing. There she is with this woman who has completely dedicated herself to her mother-in-law. And Naomi is totally oblivious to what's taking place. So much wallowing and self-pity so much focused on her own problems that she can't see that God's blessing is right there next to her. And now as the story continues, we see something else. Naomi is back home. She's back in Bethlehem. It's a small town. People recognize her. Could that be, could that be Naomi? Naomi says, don't call me Naomi. My name is Bitter. Call me Mara. And then she does something that is almost unbelievable. It actually starts in verse 13. No, my daughter, she says, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Now listen to what she says in verse 20. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because the Almighty, the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but... The Lord brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. She is blaming God everywhere for her troubles. And here's the crazy thing. She's not alone. In my ministry years, people all of my life I have met have been saying, I don't understand why God did this to me. God did this, God did this, God did this, God didn't hear, God wouldn't do this, God wouldn't do the other thing, and they're mad at God. And just like Naomi, they are mad at the only person who can possibly help them in their situation. Think of that. Mad at the only one who can help them out of the situation. They see God as their enemy, not God as their helper. How many of us have walked on this path? Started compromising someplace in our lives, and maybe in the moral area of our lives, in the spiritual area of our lives. Compromise, compromise. It became easier, easier. And we wandered away from God's instruction. 
and we found ourselves in a mess, and we were so consumed by that mess, so consumed by those difficulties, so consumed by the trouble, that we couldn't see God's blessing when it came in our direction. And so we live in anger and frustration, while so far from victory we can't even imagine living a victorious life anymore. And yet the book of Ruth is all about how that can happen, how you can get back. And the answer to that question is repent. It is to turn around. It is to retrace your steps. It is to confess to God and to understand from God that God is not your enemy. He is your rescuer. He is your redeemer. He is your help. He is the one who comes alongside you. He is the one who sends you people like Ruth and who will send you a person like Boaz so that your life will become full. This is what he wants for you. You've got to change your attitude toward God. And you've got to stop straying from God's truth. Remember, if the person who keeps my commandments, my laws, my statutes, and my decrees, I will be their God. I will be their God. And God says that to you today, and God says that to me today. We need to repent. We need to stop fighting God and to see God as our rescuer and redeemer and as the one who is sending blessing. There is blessing around us. Blessing like Ruth. Blessing like Boaz. God's blessing as God keeps his promises. Maybe today you need to start over. Maybe today you need to repent and say, you know what, God, I've been walking away. I've been wallowing in self-pity. I can't even see your blessing. And I'm mad, mad, mad. I'm angry. Please, forgive me. Forgive me. Heal my heart. And help me return to the place of blessing.